and welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Tolkien About Religion and Cinema, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We'll be talking about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring today with Dr. Marion Kelsey. Marion is a Hebrew Bible scholar at the University of Nottingham specialising in biblical narrative, illusions and scriptural reuse. She is particularly interested in how biblical narratives have been interpreted and retold in art, literature and music in the centuries after they were written. And her work includes looking at this reception in sci-fi and fantasy novels. Marion has recently published on interlocking illusions in Jonah and Ruth and prophetic protest in relation to modern protest movements. Welcome, Marion. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Okay, so our kickoff question for you, Marion. If you could add one mythical creature to our natural world, be it ents, dragons, fairies, hippogriffs, unicorns, anything like that, what mythical creature would you wish into existence? The Loch Ness Monster. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Good old Nessie. Just I feel like it should exist. I like that because it would be just the one. Yeah, yeah. Like, the other options, you would, like, add a whole species, but you've picked, like, just one. Yeah. <laughs> and she's got somewhere to live yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't disrupt any, any habitats because, you know, she's already there. So, thinking about Fellowship of the Ring, what's your prior relationship with the film and the book? Maybe, and have you done any work on them? I've not done any work on them. I have, of course, watched them many, many times. And I've read the books a few times. First, when I was really quite young, too young to absorb or remember anything from it much, and then watched the films, and then came back to the books and really, really enjoyed reading them in light of the film, with the the experience of the film behind me, because... I already knew the the broad outline of the plot, and so I could just enjoy the journey a lot more that you had so much more of in the books, because you had more there, longer, uh, more detail, more events, and I could kind of sit back and enjoy it rather than just thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? That feels like the perfect segue into our film synopsis, so let's get into it. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. The leaves lost for centuries. It has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, is a 2001 fantasy adventure film. It's the first installment in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, directed by Peter Jackson and based on the novels by J.R.R. Tolkien. Set in the fictional continent of Middle-earth, the story revolves around the Dark Lord Sauron, who seeks the One Ring, which contains part of his soul. He needs the ring in order to return to power, but it has found its way to the young hobbit Frodo Baggins via his uncle Bilbo. The fate of Middle-earth hangs in the balance as Frodo and eight companions who form the Fellowship of the Ring begin their journey to Mount Doom in the land of Mordor to destroy the ring and Sauron in the process. 
The ensemble cast, including Ian McKellen, Elijah Wood, Viggo Mortensen, Christopher Lee, Ian Holm, Sean Bean, Sean Assen, Kate Blanchett, and more is spectacular. And the breathtaking landscape of New Zealand, where it was filmed, is almost a character in its own right. The whole thing has a beautiful medieval aesthetic fed through an art deco and art nouveau lens and is an eminently rewatchable masterclass in film craft. Yeah, so I've been so excited to talk about this film because I think that Frodo is the prototypical chosen one. And given that our season is the chosen one, we had to talk about Frodo. He hits all the themic, tropic things for chosen ones. He has a common existence before he's chosen. He finds out through being chosen that he has some that there's something special about him, a quality that's important. He has somebody who teaches him and guides him in the figure of Gandalf, played by Ian McKellen, and I think also probably Aragorn, played by Viggo Mortensen. Gandalf is a wizard, and Aragorn is heir to, like, the kingdom of Middle-earth. And he has helpers. And most important for Frodo is Samwise Gamgee, who he would, Frodo would not be able to complete his mission. Mm. I feel like I've just summed everything up, but let's get into this. Frodo is chosen one. Well, this is perhaps a good moment to ask. So what did you think we were asking initially when we approached you with this film, my dear Marion? When I heard that the theme was the chosen one, the thing, the person who immediately jumped into my mind was actually Aragorn as the, the chosen king, the long lost heir to the throne, that sort of thing. And so when you then said we're concentrating only on the Fellowship of the Ring, I was a bit like, oh, how does that work? <laughs> and it was much later that I realised, oh, no, 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 this is, this is Frodo that we're talking about. I think this is perhaps another difference between the film and the book. Within the film, he is not the most interesting character, I think quite deliberately. In the book, he, he does have a bit more complexity and depth. And that is, in a way, precisely what makes him special, what makes him the chosen one, as you have defined it. But it just meant that my mind didn't immediately go there when when I first heard the theme. I agree with you about Frodo in the movies. I think even though he hits all of these things that we've outlined that are kind of not always there for chosen one figures, but very frequently there for chosen one figures, he's not very interesting. He's a little bit, you kind of wonder, like, why him? Why Frodo specifically? Because Sam doesn't seem bothered by the ring or desire for the ring. Yes. And Sam seems to, in a lot of places, demonstrate more courage or forthrightness or even just quick-wittedness. Bilbo, yes, he he has some attachment to the ring, but that's because he's had it for 60 years. And he's actually able to give it up pretty easily. Yeah, and it was only in sort of reading about where the film diverges from the book that I found out Frodo's much more complex of a character in the books and actually has moments of courage and aspects to him that make him like a more well-rounded character. It's interesting having watched The Fellowship in Isolation, which is something I never really do. Frodo, obviously, when it is just him and Sam and eventually Gollum Smeagol, it feels like he's got a bit more characterization to do and the ring is clearly almost literally tearing him apart. He's developing these two sides to who he is, at least from the fellowship to race through these story beats. It's interesting in some ways, like for me, I was thinking his chosen oneness almost, he's maybe this going too far, but he's got some perhaps self-awareness that he's got a really important task to do. 
But for Frodo, that ends at Rivendell. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. that's the end. He's had his adventure, and this is very much the text in the book. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously so much more than that. So I think that's a really interesting thing. He's just put through this trial in many ways and is swept up by things that he can't really get a handle on. And particularly when Gandalf dies, I think that's a real significant moment in Frodo's arc because it just seems as though he's broken beyond that point. Yes, yeah, there's no going back from there to the life he once had, whereas at Rivendell he could still more or less have gone back, apart from his wound. Mm. And also I think a big difference between the first and then the subsequent two movies is that when Frodo, Sam and Gollum going off on their own adventures, Frodo is very clearly the leader of that little trio. In The Fellowship of the Ring, he's almost baggage, sometimes literally baggage, carried along by all of the other passengers on the way. His only job is to wear the ring, while Aragorn and Boromir and everyone else bundles him along the route. And and so that marks a real change in Frodo's role as well between the first and then the subsequent two films. I do think we get sort of a hint of why Frodo in that initial meeting in Rivendell. So from the start of the film, when Frodo is first given the ring, basically by Bilbo, and tasked with carrying it by Gandalf, and Gandalf lets Frodo know what this ring is, the importance of this ring, and they set out to Rivendell. And as you said, Frodo thinks like, that's it, that's the big journey. And then he'll be done and he'll go home. And then he witnesses all of these people. We have elves and dwarves and men and the hobbits. And they're all bickering over what to do and who should take the ring and what should happen with the ring. And Frodo is just watching. And then he steps up and says that he'll take it to Mordor. And I think that even though we don't get a lot of the other aspects of his character that are in the books and movies... That's the main thing, I think, in this film that you're supposed to focus on. Mm. The thing that makes him different, that he's, I mean, hobbits are little (laughs) and he's with all these bigger people. I think they're bigger in character as well as in actual stature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he puts himself forward. And then the other hobbits follow suit and they've all got varying degrees of like awareness of what's going on. So Frodo's (laughs) line is like, I don't know the way. It is like such a mark of his innocence in many ways. Mm. Earlier we've had Boromir talk about what Mordor is like. He's been on the front lines of the fight against Sauron for like probably his whole life. He's very acutely aware of the danger they're going into and seems to be a voice of opposition to many of the things that the council was trying to decide. But I think that's coming from a place of, I mean, they're sitting in Rivendell, looks pretty idyllic. We'll get to Gondor in the later films, and it, a lot of it really isn't. It's kind of in ruins. And it's interesting that the hobbits are the ones who have this bravery and innocence in many ways. And immediately, it's a great scene, but they all just pile on. I think I like also that all the characters in this are complex. Like, mm. it is ultimately a story of good versus evil, but we don't have a really clear cut good versus evil in terms of the characters. So, obviously, Sauron is evil. But apart from that, every character has multiple levels to who they are. And we see a lot of weakness of varying degrees. So 
I think we see more weakness among some of the characters who are more tempted into evil than we do among the characters who stay on the side that we would label as good. But even there, it shifts around. So I think there's a real kind of honesty to that. Mm. We don't have we don't have a simplistic characterization. Alison Milbank on writing about Tolkien as a theologian has this kind of interesting idea of Tolkien thinking of evil as Augustinian in the sense that evil isn't really a thing in itself. It's an absence of good. And what we see in the evil characters is that they are depersonalized and dehumanized to the extent where the ultimate big bad in the Lord of the Rings saga is Sauron. And he is just an eye. Same with the Ring Race, the Nazgul. They are just vessels of men that their desire for power has led them down this kind of depersonalized route. I think Gollum as well is quite a broken figure and really like he clings on to life but there's no there's nothing beyond his fixation there so there's this really interesting portrayal of evil is often self-defeating. It's Sauron's arrogance that causes him to overlook the threat that hobbits could be and he there's a large part that he can't even conceive that his enemies would not use the ring. There's a whole lot of evil as a self-destructive tendency but not rather than an active personalized being. Riffing off of that and the appeal to the theology behind the complexity of the characters. In a letter to a priest friend in 1953, Tolkien wrote, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world, for the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. So it's religious without religion. It's Catholic, but without visual practice or expression of belief. How should we understand Tolkien's explanation of his work? Where is religion in the Fellowship of the Ring? For me, coming from a Hebrew Bible perspective, I saw much more of the Hebrew Bible in it, both in similarity and contrast. I've not thought of it as Catholic before, but I find that a very interesting idea. I think Catholicism strip away the semblances of religion, and Catholicism approaches life with a fundamentally communal view of humanity and humanity's role in the world. You are part of the church, and you might not have faith, but that's okay as long as you go along to Mass every Sunday and somebody else in the congregation has faith whereas Protestantism is extremely individualistic in its approach to humanity's progress, individual humans' progress through the world. And I think, especially in the Fellowship of the Ring, but all the way through the trilogy, nobody gets anywhere by themselves in Lord of the Rings. They don't achieve anything by themselves in Lord of the Rings. Everyone depends on others. And you depend on others' strengths, and you depend on others' weaknesses, like Gollum playing a vital role, even though he's corrupted by the ring. And that feels more Catholic to me. And so I I see where that is coming from. I think if I was going to find one sort of biblical theme in it, it would be the idea of the fall. Because we have Isildur and the race of men who have erred by failing to destroy the ring. That's sort of like the pre-setup for, and it happens thousands of years before the action at the start of the Fellowship of the Ring. 
And so there's a longing for a return to the state of things before that moment. And we do get that restoration at the end of Return of the King, which is the third film or the third book. But that that sort of failure of men is present. I think it's really strong in the fellowship. Like Aragorn is really, he doesn't trust in himself because men are fallible. Boromir ends up representing the fallibility of men. But look how Boromir dies. You know, he has this deathbed conversion Mm. and Aragorn ultimately succeeds in resisting the power of the ring. Quick editorial insert on the fall. The fall refers to Christian readings of Genesis 3, wherein Adam and Eve disobey God's instruction and are cast out of the Garden of Eden. Since Augustine, this has been a central part of Christian anthropology and the root of evil entering the world and many other kinds of things. But this is a specific reading rooted in historical Christianity. Back to the interview. I think this might be where the kind of the Catholicism comes in, because I think Catholics are more basically optimistic about human nature than Protestants tend to be. And that is with the fall, you know, you know, granted the fall and yet optimistic about human nature. I don't think the fall prevents you being optimistic about where humankind will end up. And in particular, this this is also a major difference between Christian views and the Hebrew Bible in itself. It's just not really a fall in the Hebrew Bible. It's not this no. um, absolute schism <laughs> <laughs> between um, the prelapsarian state and um, what happens afterwards. It's just not that big a deal. Um, it's just one example of many examples of humanity constantly trying to be like God. That's why in Jewish thought there is no fall. Yeah, yeah. That's not yeah. a thing in Judaism. That's just Christianity. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I wonder whether some of that is there in Tolkien in the sense that things can go wrong, but that doesn't mean they can't be put right. And I think, I I mean, when I was watching The Fellowship of the Ring last night, uh, of course the ring is this corrupting power and um, it can distort almost anyone. But just just watching it and going through the number of people who resist temptation, you Mm. you just keep ticking them off. And so it's not not nearly as ultimately corrupting as the the mythology within within the the novels um, presents it as. If you take just this one little snapshot of history in the history of Middle Earth, and you have what like half a dozen people who are able to resist the power of the ring, you know that that's quite quite a heavy concentration, and they all happen to be in the crucial place at the right time and. Who knows, maybe lots of other people around would have been able to resist it as well. And it, it, it doesn't seem to be that pessimistic. So I'm thinking of the key character in The Lord of the Rings who does become almost totally corrupted over the course of several hundred years is Gollum. But Gollum immediately upon finding the ring kills his cousin for it. Yeah. So you're kind of like, well, how how kind of good was he before that? <laughs> he's, like, he's had it for moments and he kills yeah. for it. But even then, Gandalf doesn't see him as beyond redemption and neither does Frodo. Eventually. E- yeah. Eventually. And there's this kind of like, even that very, very tragic figure of Gollum isn't entirely beyond redemption, I think, in the world of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting kind mm-hmm. of 
thing again coming back to this idea of what evil is in Lord of the Rings. So if we're talking about Hebrew Bible and Lord of the Rings, you had some ideas for kind of parallels between them. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to get into some of those? Because I found these particularly interesting when you were kind of mentioning to me. So I didn't find one thing that I really enjoyed about watching Lord of the Rings is that you don't find a blatant retelling of biblical stories in Lord of the Rings. It's, It's never as full as an entire narrative. It's always bits and pieces. And those bits and pieces don't necessarily overlap in in a large, coherent arc. And so it's much more elusive than it is retelling. And I think, obviously, the Shire can come across as a kind of Edenic space where there is an abundance of everything without too much toil and effort. And Frodo within the Shire, right at the start of the film... Frodo is very curious about the world outside. He wants to know about the world outside, but you have Bilbo saying at some point in his heart, Frodo is still in love with the Shire. He's not ready to leave. He thinks he is, but he isn't. He's not quite ready to leave. And I think that does mirror Adam and Eve within Eden and their desire for knowledge. They're reaching out for knowledge, but at a stage of immaturity almost. They they don't understand, because they can't possibly understand, they haven't been told what the full consequences of this would be. And, and I think also there's a bit of an overlap there with Frodo kind of chastising Gandalf for turning Bilbo and the Bagginses into this disreputable family. And Gandalf says, I don't know what you mean. All I did was give him a push out the door. And I think the serpent is very demonised in a lot of, especially Christian readings of the Eden story. Everything the serpent says is is true. The serpent says, if you eat from this fruit, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And then they go and eat the fruit. And um, at the end of that chapter, God says, oh no, what's happened? They have become like us, knowing good and evil. You know, the serpent gives the truth to Adam and Eve just in a, Mm -hmm. in a particularly shaped way. And so I I, I was quite amused by the idea that Gandalf was a kind of serpent figure Mm. with chosen one figures in various other texts. Quite often you have chosen ones growing into their role, which Frodo does to some degree. Mm -hmm. But throughout the whole Lord of the Rings arc, the emphasis in Frodo's story is on his loss, what he loses. He can never go back. He's never the same. And especially in the final scenes, you get the idea that he's actually worse off than if none of this had ever happened. And I think that had a certain amount of parallel with several of the biblical prophets, Jeremiah, most of all, for whom being chosen wasn't some grand calling. It was it was a kind of curse that ruined their life. And yet they had no choice but to complete their mission. And so there was that. And then... I think perhaps one of the most complicated set of overlaps, illusions, apart from the whole Eden thing, is with the ring as a kind of kingship and the various ring bearers as kingly figures, royal figures within the books of Samuel and Kings. And the Hebrew Bible for all that God eventually agrees that the Israelites can have a king. It's a very reluctant agreement and the Hebrew Bible is always deeply suspicious of the notion of human kingship. 
and especially the corrupting possibilities from it, because really God is the only king and the only per- the only person you should have as king, and why aren't you happy with that? But no, they want a king like all of the other nations, and so eventually God gives them a king. And the first king is, of course, Saul. Saul initially didn't want to be king. He went and tried to hide amongst all the bags. <laughs> he didn't want to be king, but then he was made king, and then slowly driven mad by this kingship and especially by the dread of his kingship being taken away by his paranoia about that power being taken from him towards the end of his life and that seemed very like a kind of Gollum figure where he when he first gets the ring he's a relatively normal person of the river folk Hmm. and then gradually over hundreds of years gets completely corrupted by this this gift of the ring and then that makes Frodo, the the true chosen one, the true king, parallel David, who is God's chosen king, one after God's own heart, and it's it, it all seems very positive. You know, surely here's going to be one good figure that we have in the Hebrew Bible. Here's at least one of them. But then, of course, once he he becomes king, that that corrupting effect also works on him. Ultimately, with the Bathsheba story, where. He's no longer out fighting the battles for God. He's at home in his palace while his army goes off and fights the battles. And because he happens to be there, whereas he should be on the front line, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He has her husband murdered. This is kind of David's ultimate downfall. And from then on, everything goes downhill for David. And yeah, it just gets worse and worse from then on for David, even though he, he dies not in absolute wickedness or anything like that but but he just stumbles over and over again from then on he does things over and over again wrong with the census and everything and he dies a broken figure and that i think overlaps a bit with frodo who starts off as quite a pure character and then the ring gradually does corrupt him and even though he doesn't commit the ultimate crime of holding on to it and seeing the world fall to ruins around him He can't undo what he did and who he was while he still had the ring and wanted to keep it. And Mm. he ends up as this broken character. And even saying that, he does actually, in the book and in the films, struggle to keep the ring to himself. And it's only because Gollum struggles harder Mm. that that doesn't happen. I mean, he doesn't throw the ring. Yeah, into yeah. the fire. He, he doesn't. Um, Gollum bites his finger off and falls. And so, so it's not... Yeah, this was one of the sort of... I read a couple articles to prep for this. I was looking for people who had written on the religious imagery in The Lord of the Rings. And I read quite a few that tried to argue that Frodo is a Christ figure because he carries the sins of the world on him. And I kept thinking, Frodo fails in the end. He, he does. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Gollum has to dispose of the ring, not intentionally yeah. so, but but yeah, he doesn't. I mean, Frodo does not succeed. So he doesn't make a very good Christ figure. He's really it not felt a Christ figure. Like, I hate that idea. It like it's a te- I thought it was a terrible reading. It's um, awful. But so many, so many people offer this as a reading. And I think they're just, it's a desire to wedge a really literal. Christianity into the Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. and Tolkien I think in his own writings talked about how he resisted that he Mm -hmm. was not on on purpose was not making a literal mapping on of 
some figures onto others. Yeah. But I think, Joe, you thought that the David figure was Aragorn or possibly Isildur. And then that would make Aragorn the sort of the king to come. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of quite literal, right? So they're both kings. They're both kind of messianic in some ways. There's sayings about the king who will restore Gondor, like one who, there's, I think they're drawn from Kennings, like this kind of English Anglo-Saxon literature kind of things where they're like riddle sayings that mm-hmm. don't really make sense, but you work them out and Tolkien almost uses them as prophetic kind of things that come true. And he also used them just as straight up riddles. So the hobbits love them and mm-hmm. as does Smeagol. So, one of the ones, one of these kind of sayings about the king that comes to Gondor is something about healing with his hands, even though his hands are empty. He's got that role about him. Aragorn definitely works as messianic, mm. yeah. And yeah, I would say messianic, not Davidic, um, mm-hmm. for this sort of reason, that David's reign ends in failure and he's lying in his bed with a concubine to warm him and he can't even get it up to you know that's implied that um he's completely powerless at the end of his life politically and personally whereas the messianic prophecies of course in their vague allusions to this that and the other that absolutely seems to map onto kennings Mm -hmm. and the the hobbit sayings and and what aragorn ultimately fulfills seems to fulfill uh with his reign and so yeah i think aragorn as messianic works very nicely Mm. I do also briefly want to just raise Boromir because mm-hmm. I do feel he's underserved in the film a little bit. Very now, much. I watched the extended edition for this, as I always do, and it's been a while since I watched the theatrical cut. But Marion, you watched the theatrical cut for this. That's so unfair to Boromir. <laughs> when I went back to the books after after I'd watched the films and read about the character. He was one of my favourite characters in the books. He was such a wonderful man in the books. Very brave, very, in some ways, quite uncomplicated in his bravery and his duty and his loyalty, putting his life on the line for the others and all that sort of thing. And they, they, they wash so much of that out, especially in the in the theatrical release of the films, perhaps necessarily, you know, there were just time limits. But it, it, it's I was very sorry to see it happen because he's a much better, nicer, more rounded sort of character in the books. And his end is like this madness that falls upon him, rather than this thing that he'd been plotting the whole way through, which is at least implied in the films. I don't know who he would be, biblically speaking. But it seems, I think he gets Perhaps a little bit... Jonathan. Maybe, oh, yeah. Oh, definitely Jonathan. Yes, yeah. of course, with the tragic end and everything. Yeah, he would very much be Jonathan. Yeah. There we are, we've nailed yeah. that. Well done, guys. <laughs> yeah. Boromir is kind of the representative in some ways of just the regular person. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he gets a lot of that. Then the real corrupting power of the ring. Mm-hmm. And even then, I still feel he kind of serves an important purpose because it also seemed that Aragorn leading the fellowship after they've lost Gandalf really just has no idea what he's doing the impetus for Frodo to, I think he's already kind of largely made up his mind that he has to abandon the Fellowship. And Boromir is that final impetus. So I think Frodo had been planning to do it almost immediately after that anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of 
almost like a Judas figure in some sense, where you read Judas very, very charitably, like The Last Temptation of Christ, where Judas has to do what he does. So Frodo goes off and completes his mission. But again, there's all these other people who are so responsible for ensuring that this quest to destroy the ring happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's so much supporting cast that's going on. And I was I was just thinking of Boromir actually in the um, through the lens of the Chosen One as an ordinary figure called to an extraordinary mission, um, something like that. And if Frodo is an example of that when it goes well, perhaps Boromir is an example of that when it does not. And a necessary contrast because otherwise the the Chosen One would not be an ordinary figure if it was preordained that they're always going to ex- mm-hmm. succeed it it wouldn't work as a as a trope it wouldn't work as an idea we have to see that it can fail in order to celebrate when it, it succeeds and i think boromir's failure as just a completely ordinary person who cannot go to ex- extraordinary lengths does that for us and it's not it's not a it's not a huge it's, it's not a character failing which I feel like it is presented as in the films, but within the books, there's no sense of this as a character failing. Boromir is a very good person. It's just that this is what the ring does. It casts its madness over you. Yeah, see, I read it that way in the films, that he is ultimately a good person Mm -hmm, and he's mm -hmm. just corrupted by the ring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe because you have even more richness to his character from the books, you see the film not doing that but i definitely got that from the film yeah good yeah i really appreciate your point about if you're preordained to succeed then you don't have this chosen oneness because in setting up this season joe and i had a long discussion about is a chosen one the same as a savior figure and i really think that there's a lot of overlap but ultimately they are not the same and the savior figure is ordained. They're always going to succeed. Mm-hmm. That is that is the thing. Whereas the chosen one, because it's this quality of ordinariness to moving to extraordinariness, that we can all sort of map ourselves onto that adventure or to the challenge or to whatever it is and think, would we also be able to succeed if we were chosen? Where mm-hmm. you can't have that sort of relationship with the savior figure. I think this is perhaps a good juncture to start to talk about the lived experience of Tolkien and War. Yeah, I think what we're getting with each of these characters, the way that each of them sort of handle the presentation of the ring and varying degrees of being tempted and and resisting that temptation. And and I think Tolkien does a really good job of demonstrating that through the fellowship. One of the other things that you said about Frodo, that he's changed by being chosen... Mm-hmm. And you related that to Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see that as the most World War One thing in this story, that Frodo is the shell-shocked veteran returning from war. Mm-hmm. Tolkien was profoundly affected by his experience on the battlefield of World War One and the loss of nearly all of his closest friends to the war. And he had insisted repeatedly throughout his later life that, and this is a quote from him, um, neither World War nor the atomic bomb had any influence upon either the plot or the manner of its unfolding. The impact 
and character of the wars, particularly the First World War, was noted by readers almost immediately when reading The Lord of the Rings. And two days after the third book was published, C.S. Lewis wrote that the wars over the ring in the books have the very quality of the war my generation knew. So a lot of people were seeing these themes even as Tolkien was resisting that the themes were present. For what it's worth, Tolkien did admit in personal correspondence that the war was perhaps, that's his word, perhaps, present in the landscape. And specifically, he points to the dead marshes, which we see in the second mm -hmm. film, mm -hmm. and the approaches to Morinon, which is the entrance to Mordor that they may owe something to Northern France in the Battle of the Somme. So I had always thought that the echoes of World War I were really quite intentional because it seemed really obvious to me in a few key ways, and we can come back to that. But it surprised me to read that Tolkien rather insistently minimized that. But in order to understand Tolkien's own experience better and to help us talk through all of this a bit, basically where and how we might see the First World War in The Lord of the Rings, I spoke to Dr. James Connolly, who's a historian of the First World War at University College London, and he explained to me that the Battle of the Somme in which Tolkien fought was a nearly failed attempt to break through the German lines. It lasted a full six months, and it resulted in a phenomenal loss of life. And I have here that will insert the clip of what James said. So, James, could you explain what the Battle of the Somme was like? So what it was was a very important battle for the British in the First World War, but also the French and obviously the Germans. It was an attempt to break through German lines, which didn't do that well. It ended up being a battle that lasted from July to November 1916, so an extremely long battle, though really it's kind of an umbrella term for a series of other battles. It involved a lot of artillery, particularly in the week before. One and a half million shells being bombarded against the German lines. But it didn't actually properly work, and the barbed wire wasn't broken, the German line wasn't broken, and therefore it was an extremely bloody battle. So about how many lives were lost? What sort of loss of life, I suppose, would Tolkien have experienced while he was there? You're talking about an immense loss of life. I mean, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the 1st of July, 1916, 57,000 casualties, 20,000 dead. Still to this day, the deadliest day in, in British military history. And then those casualties continued, not consistently, but continued until the end of the battle, uh, until November. And overall, you're talking about over a million dead when you consider all the combatants. So that's the British, the French, and the Germans, about 500,000 Germans, 400-ish thousand British and 200 to 400,000 French, so extreme loss of life. What would the environment have been like? I know we're all familiar with the sort of idea of trench warfare being muddy and dirty, but with that many people dying, and I think I've read something that it sort of, like, existing there was kind of night was day and day was night. Yeah, so there's a lot of truth to the idea of there's going to muddy battlefields, particularly in the Somme, which is northern France, northeastern France, and the weather's not great either. So particularly during this battle, in the latter part of it, October onwards, uh, there was very heavy rain, so there would have been a lot of mud. And the shell holes, one and a half million shells being bombarded against the German lines. So the landscape was pockmarked, it was ravaged by shell holes, trees no longer existed, or there were just stumps left, barbed wire is everywhere. But also the dead, that immense number of deaths, uh, immense amount of death we mentioned, the dead littered the battlefield, as they do in most World War I battlefields, because it's quite difficult and dangerous to get rid of dead bodies. Obviously, you can't do that in the middle of an assault. So this idea of an almost lunar landscape, but extremely muddy as well, covered by dead people, the stench of death, rats eating dead bodies, eating live bodies as well. A hellish landscape. This 
kind of stereotype in the First World War really was true for, for the Battle of the Somme. So when we think about the dead marshes in The Lord of the Rings, which is this marshland, and as they start to move through it, they notice that there are bodies all throughout the marshes. So this is sort of what we would have been, or what people who are at the Battle of the Somme would have been experiencing there. So a million dead and a large portion of them just dead on the battlefield for the whole six-month period. They wouldn't necessarily be left there for the whole six months. You did have people whose job it was to recover bodies if possible. Of course, the problem is you can't always recover bodies in trench warfare, partly because they've been shelled to pieces, partly because of the mud and the rain kind of claims them, as it were. And this means, yeah, there were dead bodies the whole time, essentially. Yeah, so you get lots and lots of eyewitness accounts talking about layers of dead bodies, kind of strata of dead bodies piled up on top of each other or with mud on top of them buried. Um, lots of people refer to seeing fallen comrades or even people they don't know on the battlefield dying or dead and having to past them because of the nature of an advance. Other times, bodies that are there kind of calcified, rotten, they've been there for a long time or affected by the rain or eaten by rats. So you approach a body and rats explode out of them, you know, this horrific scenario, which is caused by the nature of trench warfare, essentially. You're getting hailed at by machine guns. You're getting attacked by um, mortars and shells. Barbed wire, there are mines, potentially. It's very dangerous to, to get rid of these bodies. So the idea of bodies appearing out of the mud as you move through that mud, is very much a World War One experience, and, and lots of soldiers would have experienced that. So Tolkien was repeatedly, over the course of his life, I suppose responding to suggestions that his writing was allegory by saying it's, it's not allegory, it's absolutely not allegory. But from what you're describing, it seems like it'd be really, really hard to actually shed that experience and not put it into your writing. And I feel like Frodo, especially by the time we get to the end, at the very end of The Return of the King, he behaves like somebody with trauma or what we might have called shell shock. Yeah, I think, think that's right. And I think I think Tolkien did admit that the Dead Marshes might be based on, on the Somme there. But I think it's true to say that, that that whole experience pervades his life as it did for millions of people who fought in the First World War. You know? Not just with shell shock, but with, um, or not necessarily officially diagnosed shell shock, but obviously an experience shared by many, which is extremely horrific. And how can you forget that, essentially? How can you not be informed by that when you when you move to your own writing, essentially? And you see this, obviously, in interwar literature as well, interwar film. And also, there is filmic evidence of the Battle of the Somme. There's a film that came out in 1916 called The Battle of the Somme. A million people went to see it just in London in its first week. And it was a propaganda film based on actual documentary footage intertwined with the recreations. And so that kind of thing is going to clearly seep into your subconscious. And for the people who read Lord of the Rings and read it afterwards, they may have also been aware of this kind of national trauma on the battlefront. I kind of don't know what to say. It takes your breath away. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. Yeah. At the time, it was seen to some extent, in the way we now conceive of the Second World War. It was, although we tend to think of it as this imperial war, pitting different people against each other, who obviously had no say in this, that is true, particularly when it comes to colonial warfare as well. But at the same time, people really believed in the causes that they fought for. They really fought for something ideological in one sense. And that's actually something that um, French historians in particular touch upon this idea of war culture, the, a way people understand the war through representations, even through film, through literature, through song, a way, a system of representations to make them understand the war 
and demonize the enemy that allows you to actually kill or to accept killing and death on a mass scale that we tend to forget it was it was an ideological war it was good versus evil and both sides obviously thought they were in the right so there is an ideological underpinning to this that we tend to forget today when we just see it as purely like a war of resources or imperial cousins getting annoyed at each other and sending off their armies there's more to it than that thanks I think that's really helpful for thinking about Tolkien, actually. And uh, the way that that, the whole story is really, it's ideological. Yeah, very much a good versus evil. With this context in mind, can we talk about where we can see World War I imagery, World War I experience in The Lord of the Rings, even if Tolkien did not intend it? Hmm. I think it's strongly present. I I think as... We kind of noted the Dead Marshes, uh, one really, really strong indicator, especially the the vastness, like it's several days to get over there. There's. Can you explain the Dead Marshes, yeah. Joe? So the Dead Marshes are these swampy lands that kind of cover this vast territory. They're the remains of a long, long ago fought battle. There's just bodies of elves, men and orcs strewn all over the place underwater in the swamp. The film sets this in a marsh and there are these kind of very waxen looking figures just mostly under the water and Gollum guides Sam and Frodo through the marshes but gives a warning about not chasing after the lights, whether they're spirits or something like foxfire or fairy fire. But yeah, it's a very horrific place to be, and even the forces of Sauron don't use it. They go around it, which is why they use it as a route to get to Mordor. I think that it maps really well with how James explained the Battle of the Somme. And I I suppose that is because it does seem so clear that this is what's being evoked. One of the only places that Tolkien did acknowledge, okay, yeah, all right, fine, Mm. there's some World War I stuff there. I thought it first when Frodo is wounded, he's he has a sword that goes through his shoulder and the sword is carried by one of the, I'm going to forget what they're called. The Nazgul. Yeah. And so it's sort of like a cursed sword. And so the wound is worse than a normal sword wound. And Gandalf says that some wounds never heal and mm-hmm. you carry them with you forever. And that to me had such a complexity of meaning when you think about veterans of war and it's not just physical wounds it's mental wounds Mm. and we see that so much in frodo at the end of return of the king when he goes back to the shire and he just doesn't feel like he can be there anymore Mm. he's there's a part of himself that's just never going to be settled at home again i think also saruman who was a white wizard and was gandalf's superior and he goes evil he turns towards Sauron and we see him rip up all of the trees Mm. in his vicinity he tears them out of the ground and he starts this process of industrialization and he creates orakai who are like a warrior species that come from a mix of orcs and goblins and they come out of the earth they come out of this muddy earth 
in this industrialized sort of process. And there's this real, I think there's a lot of World War One stuff going on there as well with the with industrialized warfare. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Tolkien took really the first industrialized war in human history, and he reinterprets it where the industrialization is the soldiers themselves, whether he's intentional, I think he would say he was not doing that. But that's... <laughs> That's the reinterpretation that I see. I think with Frodo in particular, it's compelling because the films do not have the kind of famous epilogue of the books. That's the scouring of the Shire. So a kind of a broken Saruman rocks up at the Shire. The Ents let him go after they'd been guarding him because they feel pity for him. And he ends up setting like a little industrial fiefdom in the Shire and just causes terror and the hobbits returning from their journey they come back and immediately Merry and Pippin particularly but also Sam are suddenly very organized they've all been particularly Merry and Pippin they've been in organized armies they've seen battle firsthand and immediately slot into leadership roles and organize a little rebellion and overthrow Saruman very swiftly. Frodo is reticent to engage in any violence he's not really involved in planning and he's very distant at this point so the film has to kind of convey that feelings of alienation from the shire even in a situation like returning to some kind of conflict by having frodo just give an awkward look at a pub with and the others his comrades share that as well they they're also they know and they all kind of sit in silence but sam in particular is able to give that hope like he then takes a step and goes up and marries Rosie in a scene cut rather than, you know, just asking her out or something. Mm-hmm. But Frodo is unable to re-engage and has to leave. And I think it happens almost before he realises that it has happened. When we see Frodo in Rivendell and he's recovering from his witchy sword wound, he, you know, Sam kind of talks him around, oh yes, he's ready to go back to the Shire and he seems to be the old Frodo and he seems to be ready to go back and pick up his life where he left it. But then you have the scene of the the council and Gimli goes and hits the ring with his axe. Frodo kind of flinches and, and, Mm. you know, hides from it. He's already become Mm. so entangled with the ring that it hurts him to see somebody attempt to destroy the ring. But he doesn't know yet. Mm. And I think that has parallel with the experience of trauma in war where you might at first think you've escaped with your life and phew, you've got out of it and you can go back to your normal life and maybe already it is just too late to return to the way things were, but you only find that out as you try to get back into normal life. So the trauma affects you before you're aware of before you're aware of it. Thinking about the first world war and The Lord of the Rings is Peter Jackson went on to make that documentary, the colourised footage from the First World War. That, to me, only really in talking, I was reminded that he did do that. So I'm wondering if this was also mm-hmm. something that Peter Jackson, separately from Tolkien's impart to The Lord of the Rings from his own experience, Peter Jackson also is fashioning a narrative that is at least engaging with the war in a way oh like whether he was thinking yeah. about like he was already interested in the world war one themes before he made lord of the rings and i don't know or whether lord of the rings spurred him on to 
develop an interest in the First World War. The documentary, in case anyone is interested, is called They Shall Not Grow Old. Peter Jackson took a lot of archival footage from the First World War and he colorized it and he added sound under it. And as a historian, I have thoughts about this, Mm -hmm. but that would be very (laughs) off topic. I think sometimes it's hard for creators themselves to even see where they're being impacted I think this is one of the things I really like about the idea of intertextuality Mm. is that allows us to explore conversations being had in a text that perhaps the text creator wasn't even necessarily cognizant that they were engaging in. And with something that would be as traumatic and as life-altering as the experience of the Battle of the Somme was for pretty much everybody who participated in it, how could you not? be engaging with that, having a conversation with it as you are writing about war and about a conflict between good and evil. And the First World War itself was discussed at the time as a conflict between good and evil. But I wonder, Marion, do you think that we can take this kind of important and deep portrayal of war and the impact of war and take that back into our reading of the biblical text, I feel like sometimes biblical narratives are so far away that we forget sometimes about the humanity of them. I think much that is in the Hebrew Bible with the biblical style of writing narrative, it leaves an awful lot unspoken. There's a very famous essay, the author of which I wrote, remember in a moment, but the essay is called Odysseus's Scar, and it compares biblical narrative style to Iliad narrative style. And Homeric epic tends to express a lot of things in explicit language, what characters are thinking, what they're feeling, what goes through their mind as they see Odysseus's Scar, for example. And Hebrew Bible is very terse and Mm-hmm. prefers not to express very much at all. It narrates the bare essentials and leaves the rest for you to work out and for you to wrestle with. And so, to some degree, the vocal texts will give you what you bring to it in the sense of the degree to which you colour in the emotions that are there or not there, not expressed there, but which you assume must be felt. And that allows a great deal of flexibility in interpretation, especially recently with feminist interpretations, trans interpretations, all of this sort of stuff. The way, the, the reason why they have so much scope and so much ability to do amazing readings with the biblical text is that there are so many gaps there that they can fill in in their own way and say, there's nothing to say this reading isn't plausible. There's nothing to say this reading isn't possible. The biblical texts are very much something which only come alive in their reception. And compare that to Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's insistence that he didn't model this on the First World War, regardless of whether or not he modelled it on the First World War, this is a major part of the book's reception. And this is Mm -hmm. a major part of how people understand the First World War and how people of Tolkien's generation might have felt about experiencing the First World War, whether or not Tolkien wanted to put it in there, or consciously put it in there. And to an extent, once you write a text, you release it into the wild, and you don't Hmm. have the only say on how it's read. Good answer. 
Marion, it's been so great having you with us today, but before we let you go, we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing. This can be anything, anything at all that you would pair with The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. A drink, a food, another movie, a book, an article, a piece of music, the sky is the limit. Okay. Well, I watched The Lord of the Rings films when I was still quite young, early teenage years, I think. And of course, the scenery is just stunning. And my family were great walkers. And as a kid, still full of so much imagination for a long time after seeing them, I couldn't I couldn't go for a walk anywhere without the Lord of the Rings theme music playing in my head. I, we were all living in Northumberland at that time, which has very similar scenery. And I think if you want to relive your own little Lord of the Rings quest experience. There was a walk I went on recently, a long distance walk with a friend of mine, which was five days walking through the wilderness, essentially no no shops, no roads, nothing. And so everything you had to carry with you. And then we went from Blair Athol to Kingussie via Glen Tilt and Glen Feshy. So essentially two and a half days walking down one glen and two and a half days walking out another glen. And the scenery was stunning and very similar to Lord of the Rings. And if you need to kind of gird your loins at an inn at the start of the walk, there's uh, the Athol Arms at Blair Athol, which is the prancing pony in, in real life. And so you can go there, you can have a whole pint, and mm. and then try this try this long-distance walk with the Lord of the Rings theme music coming through your head. That's unfortunate for our listeners who are not in the UK. <laughs> come to the UK. Come and do yeah. this walk. Yeah, come yeah. visit. So that's what you need to pair with a viewing yeah. of The Lord of the Rings is a visit to the UK. Uh-huh. This is really good, Marion. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's been great. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style the Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.